Sounds good. Kosh, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Very happy to have you here. You are the CEO of Cloud66, and it's worth mentioning up front, Cloud66 is the first sponsor for FS Jam, so disclaimer right there, but really happy to have you here to talk about it. It's very in line with the things we talk about here in FS Jam, so definitely curious to learn more about it. But before we get into it, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background, how you got into coding, and then how you got into creating this company. Sure, absolutely. So it has a long history. It's just not because it's a very convoluted one. It's because I'm very old. So you can imagine there's a lot of years to cover and I'm not going to bore you with all of it. But basically, I got into coding because I got into electronics and building electronics, different circuits. And my dad was a big advocate of building things that make profit. And because I was a student, I was have been what, like 12, 13 there was not much of a business going on. So I realized that I like creating things. So instead of just buying components and put them together, I might as well just make one investment, which is a computer. The back then it was a Commodore 64 and just create programs. So it was more of an economy kind of question of creativity without ongoing cash flow issues. So I got into computer programming and that's been the past 30 something years of my life. So that's how I got into computers. I got into Commodore 64, as I said, and basic as a programming language. Then in high school, I moved, um, I wrote Pascal and Turbo Pascal and then Delphi, which was all Windows based. And then I moved to Linux, did Ruby, Go and whatever else. And now I think I'm kind of banned from touching the code base from within the company. So I keep myself happy thinking that I can do code and I never test that theory, but not doing it. So I kind of in an ignorant bliss. That is actually a really interesting one. The further you run into being a co-founder and running a business, the less you actually have time to actually code. I find that it's one of the most interesting things. It's like, could I actually code still? And it's a big question and how deep you get is a very big one. Especially when there's newfangled languages that come out every six months. that Everybody's now trained on within a year. You're like, are we still using like Ruby? Exactly. Everything comes out like, is it still alive? Is Ruby still alive? Is JavaScript still alive? Well, TypeScript's definitely a thing now. Whatever is the next. So yeah, when you when you see the pace change, for example, in like JavaScript frameworks, you kind of go, well, should I wait long enough that I don't have to learn and then the next one's going to come along or should I invest in it? But for me, it's more about, as you know, what we do is about selling to developers. So for us being close to our customers and as a person who's responsible for the product itself, I really want to be close to our customers. So I have this kind of almost a duty that I have to learn the new things, try it on Cloud 66 and see how the developer experience is. And that kind of keeps me, I want to say, at least in the game, but it would be an exaggeration to say that I'm actually any, any competent. You've been running Cloud 66 for 12 years by the looks of it. 12 years? 10, actually. We just had our 10-year anniversary offsite right here in Oakland because it was a conference that we wanted to go to as well. So we got all the team, well, most of the team over, and we had a fun week. I think it was good after two years of not doing anything company-wide. Yeah, it's been 10 years that this has been going on. Within then 10 years, we've seen a rise of third, what is a Swiss call it, third-tier cloud providers? Layer 2. Layer two, that's it. You know more than me. How would you argue that you saw this coming as a company doing it for 10 years? And how has Cloud66 evolved from its original idea to now competing against, you know, Heroku's and Netlify's of the world? 
That's a very good question. I'm not going to claim any credit for like foreseeing this. So we started doing something else and we very early on we pivoted. So still I can claim that we've been doing this for 10 years, but I think I can shave off about two months when we realized the money is somewhere else. We started as, uh, so this is 2012, right? Six years into iPhone, app stores were like four years old. So what we did was we tried to build an app store for data centers. That was the idea. We thought, oh, packaged, ready to use, things that work nicely together on a well-defined opinionated stack and platform is a good idea. So we, we just started doing that. The company even was called something else. And we did that as an app store. I think we rolled out about 10 or 12 different apps, first iteration. And then as all good startups are supposed to do, we started collecting a lot of metrics. And we saw that out of the 12, one of the apps has taken traction quite a lot. And that was the one that would deploy Ruby on Rails onto any cloud provider. So we thought, oh, you know what? We're going to just drop everything and focus on this guy. And that was the birth of the company. So that was kind of how we started. As you can imagine, you know, when you start off with App Store for data centers, there's always a data center in the equation. As soon as we focused on doing ops for existing cloud infrastructure, we found ourselves competing with the likes of Heroku, where they own the entire stack. So this kind of competition with Heroku, and we've had a lot of different competitors that a lot of people even don't remember. AppFog was another one. We've had a lot of PaaS, and Docker itself was .cloud, which was a PaaS, and Docker was a kind of a side project that ended up being the more important one. So we've had like the whole shebang of companies that we've competed with. Heroku is probably the only one that's from the old generation that's around, but there's new ones that are coming on. And I think I'm very excited about seeing how those guys do it. There seems to be this, I would describe that like Java, especially is like this fashion industry far much more than it actually is about programming, like a new website every six months, a new design, a new programming language every few years. We've seen like this really weird balance between going from static to serverless to serverful it's like a circle that keeps on rotating every few years and each one has a new platform that hosts it better than the previous standard what would you say the biggest benefit is by connecting to all the major providers allowing choice to pick one over another if I wanted to unpack that, I would just go with two main things. So you are completely right in, in saying that every six months we see new technology, new way of doing things, and everybody kind of we all come along and say, "Well, my, this is amazing." And un until we kind of do a little bit of research on it, it's like, "Oh, this was happening, uh, I don't know, six years ago," and we just it's a deja vu. So we started the company with a couple of big bold goals. One was that we're going to make few bets, but we're going to make very strong bets, not on technology, but on paradigms. And I think we made three, so far, three major bets in the past 10 years of the company. I think we got all three of them right. I'm proud to say that's the case. I'm not going to claim that much credit. A lot of it is luck and hindsight. But the first one was around the fact that PaaS, as it was, say, Heroku, has fundamental economic issues. This is not a technology issue. And we can dive into that as to what that is. The second one was around containers and containerization, not as a technology, but as a way of doing things. And the third one was around Kubernetes, again, not as Kubernetes technology. And I'm talking about technology versus, say, Mises and Mesosphere or other container orchestration platforms and frameworks and whatever you want to call them, but also around the organization management and governance of open source. So those are the kind of the paradigms that we bet the company. And I think the fact that startups die 
within the first three years and we've been around for 10 years so far, I think is some sort of a testament as to we got that best right. So that's kind of on the fundamentals of that. And I think each one of those economic paths issues, the governance of open source and the way of doing things where containers fit within an organization of separating ops and devs and the responsibility of different organizations, departments from each other. So those are the paradigms that we think are the successful ones. Those are very deep subjects that we can get into. As for the choice, as you mentioned in your question, uh, you know, giving customers more choice around different cloud providers, I think is a double-edged sword. So a lot of times when we did kind of a survey of our customers or potential leads, it used to be more mentioned. Lock-in was a lot of mention and lock-in is like, you know, AWS, we don't want to run everything on AWS. We don't want to have lock-in to one vendor. But it seems that there's not that much of an issue right now. Not because multi-cloud is a big deal right now, as it probably was promised back then, but I think the market is going to relaxed a little bit. Nobody's going to say, I'm running Windows throughout, so therefore I have a lock into Microsoft. So that's kind of one side of it. But the other side is by giving customers option on the economic side, what we did was we allowed customers to benefit from the downward pressure that these units of cloud will have. So every year, well, at least before the inflation pressure of the recent 18 months, every year the cloud price, unit prices would drop. VMs would get cheaper, SSDs would get cheaper, even network to a degree will become cheaper and was the case for a long time. That margin was not passed into customers when they were running on a pass. So this was a kind of case, especially if you think about, say, I don't know, when DigitalOcean came about giving you VMs at $5 a month back then, passing that on to a customer is a great thing to do. The other side of this double-edged sword is that by allowing a lot of cloud providers and decoupling the customer's application from the cloud, while we allow customers' workload to move around, you kind of expose them to a risk of not really thinking about the fundamentals of that cloud. And I think we found that issue early on and we paid a big price for it. So what do I mean by that? So a lot of times as being a customer that's cloud-friendly, as a company that's cloud-friendly, we get inbound requests from all sorts of cloud providers that for deep integration of Cloud 66 with that cloud provider. And early days of the company, we would say yes to all of them. You have a cloud provider with 10 servers and you call yourself a cloud provider, we would go and integrate with you. The ultimate issue was that while we made use of that cloud provider easy, the reliability of that cloud provider was not the same as, say, AWS, for example. So customers would ultimately suffer from downtime, unreliability, and all the issues that comes with it. What we learned was while we have to broaden the spectrum of cloud providers that we do support, we have to use cloud providers that are reputable and we actually trust not just their quality, but also their management systems, their practices around changing API and all sorts of things around that. Another thing that we see our customers benefit from moving between different clouds is when um, you have every cloud going around and giving credit to startups or new companies or all of those free credits and free usage allowances that companies give to their customers. And they can bring it to Cloud66 and use that. So essentially have a Heroku-like experience for free on their cloud provider of choice. And that's, I think, good for the cloud providers. That's good for the customers. So that's where we are right now. Those are kind of the two criteria that we choose for cloud providers. So when the customer comes to us, they know they get a good cloud provider experience of their own choice. And they also have access to the regional cloud providers that are out there. How many cloud providers do you have? 
we always allow customers to bring their own servers, whether it's on a cloud provider that we do not support or they have bare metal somewhere in the data center, like an old school kind of system. So that's always the case. They can always bring any server they want and they will get the benefits of using Cloud 6.6. But I think we have overall, I think 10, if I'm not mistaken, you have the usual suspects of the big three, Google, Amazon, and Azure. And then you have the second tier, I would say, the big developer-friendly ones, DigitalOcean, Linode, which is now, I think, part of Akamai, Hetzner, and you have some regional ones that we do support. For example, MaxiHost, I think is called Latitude now, which is a Brazilian cloud provider, and it's very popular with Brazilian software developers, and we have other ones around the world. What about Alibaba? China is an economy, is a kind of a region that we've never entered deeply. So for us, there was a, first of all, because we're not very familiar with that market and the regulation seems to be of a specific type that we don't have the bandwidth to make sure that we're always on the right side of the, the kosher side of things. It's a nice way of saying you don't have time for the politics of the CCP. I guess that's one thing. I think the world's big enough for us to be able to grow bigger without having to deal with a lot of meta issues. So what kind of applications do you think most people run on Cloud 66? It sounds like you have a wide breadth of servers, containers, static sites. You can do a little bit of everything, but do you feel like there's like a sweet spot that most people come to you for? Yes. Technically, we have, if you were under the hood, we have two different products. One is for static sites, one is for dynamic, if you will, like old school, you know, with a server size. So static sites, you can imagine is mostly around using things like Gatsby, Next.js, and any static site generator, the latest flavor of any of those. And this runs on an object storage like S3 or whatever is your cloud provider's equivalent of. And then it's fronted by a WAF or web application firewall where traffic's redirected, filtered, and served, and you can apply some the rules to it. So you can imagine, you can think of it as a Netlify on your own cloud provider, essentially. And that's one side of the business. And you can imagine, you know, when you have something like this, a lot of creative agencies would use that to deploy static sites for their customers, whether it's uh, marketing sites or blogs or things of that sort. The second side is a dynamic where you have an application, whether it's you know Node.js or Rails or a Go API fronted by React or an app backend where our customers uh, use that. And we have two major use cases on that. One is, again, by creative agencies where they develop something for a customer. We have major companies run critical infrastructure on that. Like Pixar, for example, is one of our customers that they use our services to compile and build and sell their flagship product, which is RenderMan, the industry standard for ray tracing application, like for any animation that's worth watching, I suppose. And then smaller agencies that do that. That's kind of one side. The second side that we've seen a lot of traction in the past three, four years is when SaaS providers want to have on-prem or dedicated instances for their customers. So essentially what they have is a SaaS service or something that can be delivered on a web medium and they use cloud 66 to deploy dedicated ring fence instances for every single customer and we make that easy for them to do that in a uniform way at different cloud providers the different regions close to their customers where the customer want under the customer's account for example and have these deployed and synchronized across the board so those are the two main use cases that we see as for the application type i think it's such a long tail that i wouldn't be able to give you a specific application type. I would say we've had a lot of travel industry, a lot of e-commerce that's been hosted on Cloud66. As you would imagine, the past two years, travel industry websites not done great, but e-commerce has been on the up. So we have a lot of, it's a wide range. Yeah, this is actually something that as we've been speaking, I've thought it's kind of like the ultimate abstraction of any cloud provider. Like, you know, every single one of them has EC2 of some sort and like S3 of some sort, but you don't want to learn their interfaces. I guess you can use Cloud 66 to just use them with an abstraction. 
That's correct. I mean, that's one of the uses that we have. And it's kind of interesting in the sense that more than just not having to invest in learning the interface and the intricacies of each cloud provider, what a lot of our customers do with Cloud Six Six is that they have multiple environments, for example, QA, staging, you know, UAT and other environments, and then a production one. And a lot of times they use Cloud Six Six to deploy production, for example, to AWS and the UAT QA test, whatever else, to another cloud provider that potentially is cheaper or they can pack more into a server or they have bare metal on it. It is an abstraction that people benefit from in different ways. So one is like not having to invest in like what's the latest of the 500, you know, three letter acronyms that are on AWS, or it could be that I'm going to use DigitalOcean for non-production workloads and AWS for production or the other way around. So there's a lot of that going on around it. I think there was a time maybe six, seven years ago where not all data cloud providers had data centers everywhere that there are, for example, DigitalOcean for a long time didn't have any data centers to say in India. That would have put them in a disadvantage. So some of our customers used that as a way of compensating for that, go with another cloud provider that has a closer proximity to their customers. But that's not necessarily, you know, the laws of physics basically says that you need up to 25 data centers around the globe to basically cover everyone within 200 milliseconds. That's basically what it is with fiber optics. And all cloud provider major ones, at least, they have the 25 data centers that's there. One of the cool uses cases that we encountered early on, which has something to do with both multi-cloud and regionality, is that right after the nuclear disaster that happened in Japan after the tsunami, what we restarted the company in 2012. So that happened, I think, 2011. There was a charity that what they did was they would put a Geiger counter on top of a mobile phone and mount it on a drone. So they would fly these essentially radioactive counters or meters, measurement devices into potential disaster zones or potential zones that you don't want to send humans first. And they would map the readings onto a website. So, you know, in real time, you would know if the wind shift, for example, is dragging radioactive potential hazardous material your way and all sorts of things around it. And as you would imagine, when you want to run something like this, you need to be in different regions and you need to be close to where your workers are. And potentially, you know, if it's something we're talking about a nuclear power station, the data center that's powering your app might just go down because of the very disaster that you're trying to monitor. So we had these things where users would use different cloud providers deliberately in different regions. And this charity exactly benefited from that. So in 20 minutes, they could just switch over from one cloud provider to another. So it's yet another, yet another use case of multi-cloud usage that Cloud6 allows. Do you, as like a service, provide that, you know, glue between the providers? For example, what I mean by a very specific example, because I felt this, is S3 has technically different rules on how they operate permissions on like DigitalOcean to on Amazon. Do you abstract that in a way that the same permissions are added to both containers? On the static side side of our business, yes, we do. So what you can do, you bring in your static site generator, which will then spit out a bunch of HTML JavaScript files that are suitable for that. Say, take the example of Gatsby, which is a React-based static site generator, and it generates an NPM run build, I suppose, will generate a bunch of static files. Now, those static files will go on to your S3 equivalent or you know the object storage that you have, say, on DigitalOcean or AWS. What we have is a layer in front of it what we call control tower. And that's where we control access to any of those sites. So you can, in theory, what you can do, you can move your site from AWS to, say, DigitalOcean with zero downtime. As the migration is happening, your traffic gets redirected. 
your permissions get moved over and your access for users and the logs are even continuous. So a user that is served the JavaScript from AWS and the CSS assets from DigitalOcean will have a continuous log while the migration is happening. Now, migration is not something that you do every day, but it shows that you can have a, a unified or uniform, I should say, front on top of the, all of these different ways of managing objects. Yeah, so, and this is actually really important where we see things like AWS just go down for hours and half the internet shuts down. And I bet that's where you see like a lot of providers just say, we're just going to spin up DigitalOcean for a few hours to get back online. Yes, this has happened. I mean, there are cases that if AWS S3 is down, we probably will have some existential problems, but there are other services that it can be affected. And it's not necessarily just limited to a single cloud provider or the biggest ones or the small ones. And in those cases, a lot of cases, we've seen this this happen. One anecdote, kind of like a strange twist of all this is that we built our product in a way that we are very immune to one single cloud provider going down, bringing Cloud 66 itself down, as you would imagine from a service like us. So when Amazon S3 went down, we didn't have that issue. We were not. But one twist was that when S3 was down, pretty much half the internet was down. So nobody would even notice that you're up. So this is kind of like a like a weird twist of whole like dependency on a single cloud provider. And I think maybe that's played into this lack of fear of lock-in into a single provider. It's like everybody's playing uh, in AWS sandbox. So we might as well just relax and enjoy. So you're very decentralized, it sounds like. Has anyone ever tried to run blockchain nodes on you? Oh, yeah, this is a constant ongoing battle challenge, if you will. Yes, we have for our container side. So you can run Cloud 66 or you can run up your application in containers. And when you have container based deployments, you always have a build stage, which means you can just build anything and you can basically use our CPU cycles, which on our build machines, we call them build grid for anything you want, including cryptocurrency mining, which happens every day. So we have sophisticated systems of detecting those, blocking those, banning those getting them out, which includes both technical and, if you will, social aspects of the accounts that come in. We are in constant contact with CICD providers around the world, our friends who face the same issues and the solutions they come up with. And we always talk about sharing ideas as to how to make sure service quality is constant for real usage. And they have strange and wonderful ways of blocking them. For example, you cannot sign up for a lot of CICD providers with a GitHub account that is younger than six months. Now, it might be discrimination against somebody who just wants to start on GitHub, but statistically, I think it shows a lot of uh, crypto miners just use GitHub new accounts for their purposes. So there's a lot of that going on. So even if they're paying, you still consider that like an illegitimate user? Is there a way to do that and still be like above board? Oh, right. Okay. I'm from the Web3 world, so. Yes. RTNC forbids use of Cloud66 CPU for mining purposes. This is just because the machines that we use for the build stage, which is our machines, are not optimized for that. And it would basically suck out the oxygen for all the other tenants running on the same one. This is just a pure fair play measure that we put in. However, as a provider that runs pretty much a lot of the compute and storage and network of the whole operation on customers, on our customers' account, if you you use Cloud 66 to build, use the compute, transfer, or do whatever you want to do on your own servers, be it Web3 uh, blockchain or even like pure Bitcoin mining, good luck doing that on the cloud. But you know, if you want to do any of that on your own servers, we don't have any issues with it. As long as it's legal within the jurisdiction that you use it and it's compliance with the cloud provider you choose, that's good with us. 
Gotcha. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I would be curious, something that is coming up a lot with companies like Netlify and Vercel is this idea of edge compute, and they're bringing in things like Cloudflare or Dino Deploy. And since you support, you know, every cloud, someone could just use like CloudFront from AWS. But I'm curious if you have any sort of like edge native solutions that you're thinking about, or if that's an area you think you're going to go into. So the answer to that is a lot of it is about intent. What is the customer want to achieve and what is what is the purpose of running something on the edge? There is a lot of legitimate use cases for it. And there's a lot of cases that we think the same purpose can be served in a different way. Sometimes just pure edge compute is about being closer to the customer or being closer to the web application. A lot of those use cases are, are available. Not everybody is like Spotify that they want to have like, you know, most of the top charts of the region on a Google mobile must just somewhere down the road, but there are still legitimate use cases for that. We don't support that part of it, but many cases what we've seen in in terms of edge compute is around traffic shaping and traffic redirects based on not simple rules of just regex, but some more complicated rules that will send traffic to different areas. And those are the ones that we do support. So we have, instead of spinning up containers to just put a traffic redirect engine essentially into it, what we do is that we use what we call control tower, where you can write a custom expression language script, cell, which is a Google language. You can write that and we run it for you. And then we redirect it to your static storage, which is S3. So you don't need to necessarily have a JavaScript snippet, if you will, just to send traffic to different places based on language, browser, mobile app, or the technology that comes in or where the referrer is. We take care of that for you, but it's not running on your own edge anywhere. So you can save you money by that. And we benefit from having to build only one platform to sell all, all of that traffic. But if you really want to have some very complex logic right next to your customer, that's not something we do support. Very interesting. Being in the industry now for 10 years, how do you feel like the next five years of cloud infrastructure and developer experience is going to play out? That will require my crystal ball, which is in the lower drotches. Joking aside, I think one thing that I'm excited about is that after the kind of stagnation of PaaS as it was for the past, uh, for, you know, up until about two, three years ago, where Heroku essentially stopped innovating and they just did very minimal container supports and the developer experience for it has not changed or improved, as to say. They started with a great user experience and the developer experience to begin with, but that didn't change much. So, you know, they had a good start point, but the improvement kind of stopped since Salesforce acquisition of that. So there was a stagnation phase where PaaS kind of felt at risk. I think now with players like Render and Fly.io, where each one essentially takes a different approach, especially companies like Fly.io, where they really emphasize on running close to the customers and firecracker micro VMs, containers, micro canonas, or whatever you want to push out as fast as possible, build and start as fast as possible right onto the edge. Those are the things that I'm excited about. So I think while a lot of companies that start in the PaaS space don't really address the fundamental economic issues of PaaS, essentially PaaS gets expensive very quickly for very understandable economic reasons. While they don't address those, the technology is very exciting around this. And I think that is going to be where we see a lot of innovation and excitement around this. The same way I think technologies like Kubernetes have turned into tools of managing data center in a new kind of world. But I think the same way cloud became the killer application for virtualization, I think PaaS, I want to call it PaaS 2.0, can become the killer application for things like Kubernetes. So that's kind of one area that, I, that we are watching very closely and we really are excited about. 
Is there any Cloud 66 community? It looks like you have a Slack on your homepage. Yes. So we do have thousands of users that use Cloud 66. And I think about maybe, I can check right now. I want to say about 3,000 or so are active on Slack where they help each other. And it's a fantastic, amazing community of wonderful people who are very helpful to each other and help us both in terms of helping each other and helping us understand what we can do better and how we can improve and how we can shape the product. So there's that side of the community. We also are very active in open source. If you go to cloud66.com, I think it's slash OSS. If I am not mistaken, you will see the list of open source projects that we support. Yeah, it's slash OSS or open source software. We have a few projects that we do support and contribute to, sponsor, both in the kind of Ruby on Rails and Kubernetes, Node.js sites. So we have a vibrant community there as well. How does the support look like? Because I guess it gets really complicated when, you know, something goes wrong. How do you identify the problem? How do you then say, that's a problem with Amazon. That's not a problem with us. This is a very business question because it's like liabilities and like, how do you know that everything is working correctly? How does Cloud66 manage that? That's a very good question. You don't want to be in a position where the customer comes to you and says there's something wrong and the only thing we can tell them is like we are waiting as fast as possible for Amazon to fix the problem. That's not a place we want to be. But the way we've, and this just come, this comes with a kind of a network effect that we've realized is actually possible, is that when you have tens of thousands of servers that you manage and deploy for, our, for your customers and you get vital information from them and we deploy, I don't want to give it like a specific number, but somewhere around a million times a day, for example, for our customers collectively, then you have you have a network effect that you can identify issues pretty much before something is going to happen to everyone. Now, that means that someone's experienced this. So that is something, someone that we help, but that limits the scope of support for us in terms of discovery part by quite a lot. When we start seeing something, for example, an app repository has an issue on DigitalOcean, one or two deployments will go wrong and it will take us a while, our support team, to identify and isolate that problem and potentially come up with a solution for it. For example, in a replacing, say, in this case, an app repository with an alternative or a mirror. But then it means that we can stop other deployments from going wrong. That will happen right after that. So it's kind of a canary in the mine, if you will. And we have a lot of our own canaries in the mind that we deploy constantly just to have on every cloud, every data center, every availability zone, every different permutations of their you know, application and other things. But this kind of helps us quite a lot with that. The other approach that we take is kind of before you hit support, this is on the product side. So we go very much with the 80-20 rule. Our product is really good for 80% of the use cases that we see. And we don't even claim that you, know, you can bring everything that you can do yourself onto Cloud 66. So if you are running a web application or an API backend, or you have a static site, probably Cloud 66 is one of the best solutions and things that you can do for your business. So you can focus on business and let us worry about operating systems. But if you have a fast, high frequency training application, you know, we are not the right place for you. And by doing that, we make sure that the types of the categories of the issues that we see, be it on our side, our customer's application side, or the cloud provider side, is within a few buckets that we can get really good at fixing and addressing. And the third aspect of that is what we call tools that scale humans. So what we didn't want to become is a consultancy shop. We didn't want to be a consultancy where we have to hire more people as we get more customers so we can take care of the load that comes with it. So what we did was we invested heavily on internal tooling, visibility, metrics, monitoring, everything that comes with that. We call those systems mission control. That allows us to, with a small support staff, 
have the visibility over what's going on on thousands and thousands of servers and millions of deployments that are going on every day. And that will allow us to be ahead of the game and, and solve the issues before they hit a critical mass. And this is really important for like non-technical customers as well. I see that you work a lot with agencies and normally it's agencies deploying that website, managing that account. There's nothing more confusing than trying to get that agency to then set up a, a cloud providing host themselves. It's much easier for the agency to just say, look, we'll charge you hosting fees and we'll manage it. And giving it in a way that the agency can still have control and have a cost-effective price point for that, I think is super, super interesting. One of the things that, I noticed that we've not spoke about is on-premise deployment. I guess this is like, this is something I've never touched yet. And I know it's way for the big players. But I remember speaking to Tom Preston Warner at GitHub previously. And he was saying when they made Enterprise, it was the most biggest pain ever because getting the latest application deployed on someone else's server is a lot harder of an issue than it sounds like. That's absolutely correct. So we approach this problem from two aspects, two angles, and we're kind of very familiar with the pain points. One is that Cloud66 can be deployed on-prem for customers who want Cloud66 for themselves. And we have those customers. We have those in the health industry and in the finance industry where we have customers, they want to have Cloud66 to themselves, a single tenanted one on their cloud provider of choice or even their servers somewhere down in the basement. I'm not lying here. There's been cases that I had to be escorted with people with guns into 30 meters of concrete down the basement in some specific building in London where servers there have not been restarted since 1990-something. You know, there are those cases that we have to deal with. I'm not going to say it's easy. There's a lot of legacy things going on. By being able to deploy Cloud66 itself inside of containers and inside of Kubernetes itself, we've kind of taken away a lot of the complexities and abstracted away, but it doesn't mean that you can run Kubernetes anywhere. You know, If you have someone who wants to run something like this on a cruise ship where there's no internet in open seas, yeah, well, maybe that's not possible. So that's kind of like part of the, the issue. But the other side of it is using Cloud6 to deploy on-prem. That's the part that we're actually very good at. There are other companies that do this, but for us, we make it easy in two different, two specific ways for our customers. One, we help them wrap the application into very clear boundaries of inside code and developer concerns and outside, which is infrastructure and operations concern. That is very clear boundary. So when you're dealing with deployment, you know if an issue is outside of this boundary, you're going to have to reach out to your customers, say cloud provider operators or the audit company or the ops guys of the customer or the client to solve a bunch of issues, like whether it's a traffic routing table or a firewall issue that it might be. The other part of it is about making sure that you as a provider of those have a unique uniform control panel for all these instances that go out. Because one of the most complex things around deployment of on-prem is actually version control. If you have a customer who's not willing or not ready to upgrade to the latest version of your code, like you can just push a button on your SaaS product and get there. When you fix a bug, you end up fixing that bug on like 20 different branches for 20 different customers because not everybody wants to go on the latest product migrate up all the way and have the downtime and everything risk that comes with it at the same time. And that's one of the things that we make very easy. We create dashboards and ways that we can retrofit a bug fix or a feature into different branches depending on what branch each customer wants to use. And that's one of the biggest pain points that we take away. So not just the operation side, but actually the task of maintaining various different versions of the same on-prem on multiple clients. Yeah. And obviously you deploy using Git. Yes, we've always supported Git, uh, whether it's Git, GitLab, GitHub, or just pure good old standard. 
I bet it's the, the proper on-prem support when it's like, we host our own Git, we host our own authentication Okta, we host our own everything. Like, we don't want to be on anyone else's cloud. Exactly. That's one of the biggest challenges, yes. And not only do we host our own Git, but it's not actually run on port 22, it's point 23. Yeah, for sure. My last question is a bit of a, a meta one is, do you enjoy dog fooding your own product? Yes, that happens a lot, as you can imagine. You know, when you talk about deployments, how do you deploy the first deployment? And that's a question we have. So what we have is what we call a bootstrap environment, which is an on-prem in the cloud, but it's dedicated instance of Cloud 66 called Bootstrap, and that's ours. And we use that to deploy other instances of Cloud 66, be it Cloud 66 production, which is a SaaS version, or other on-prem instances that we have for other clients, we use Bootstrap for that. So there's a lot of dog fooding going on there. But I have to admit, Bootstrap itself is not deployed with Cloud 66 because at some point you're going to have to stop and somebody's got to go and run a script or push a button. We use, for all of that, it is hosted on a Kubernetes instance or a Kubernetes cluster, I should say. We have our own processes to maintain the scripts for the very first instance, for the, for the OG, the Bootstrap to be deployed itself. So we do a lot of that and that helps us a lot. Our static sites are uh, dynamic application itself. And it's not just cloud66.com. We have other assets that we deploy with cloud Success as well. It's quite a fun inception-inducing uh, process. I bet, for sure. And especially when you find bugs in that. You're like, is this a bug in the bootstrapping process or is this a bug in the actual product? Absolutely. Have you got any other questions, Anthony? No, I just want to open up the floor to you if there's anything else you want to speak about or things you want to let our listeners know about before we close it out. I think it was uh, great to be able to tell you a little bit about our backstory and what we are up to. We have a promotion going on right now, which you got the code for it. So you can, you know, anybody who signs up with your um, coupon will get a discount on Cloud 606 uh, for per instance. Our pricing level is per server that we manage. So there is that. And with the code, they can benefit from a great discount. So that's something that I'm excited to see how your listeners and viewers use Cloud 66 for. And that code is FSJM-66. Thank you so much for your time today. And I should probably give this a look when I eventually know that I will have to use like AWS or Google. I know it's coming. I know I can't just hover around other companies forever. I will need to go down. And I spoke to someone who was at Slack from 20 people to 20,000. And he was like, just always bet on AWS. AWS is the best. But you can spend weeks and weeks and weeks learning just how to use the dashboard. So I guess Cloud66 helps with that too. Absolutely. Looking forward to see what you get to do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I guess if people want to find out more, they can go to cloud66.com. And are there other social platforms that you would direct people to? Yes. Cloud66.com is the best place to start. You can just sign up there. It's uh, two weeks free for, for trial. And you can automatically extend your trial if you don't get a chance to play around with it. I know everybody's busy, so we automatically built that into the system. You can extend your trial as much as you want. Yeah, looking forward to seeing more use cases and wonderful applications being deployed with Cloud66. Well, thank you so much for being here and thank you for being the first sponsor of FSJ. We really appreciate that and we're super excited to continue this partnership. Likewise. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.